Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. Throughline, as the groundbreaking niche album literary analysis podcast it is, would not exist if it weren't for the assistance of two important entities. First, Throughline is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier place to find podcasts covering all kinds of music-related topics and more. With their brand new easy-to-use app, it's the best way to find new music, explore the history of music, and hear the stories about the people who make and listen to music. Second, Throughline is a proud spinoff of the Audio Judo podcast, a well-researched and entertaining foray into all kinds of albums and how they fit into the host's personal musical experiences. Check them out wherever you podcast. This week, we're covering one of the greats, an icon in the industry, a trailblazer, and one of those artists, again, who I had only ever heard the hits because I'm a bad music fan. It's David Bowie's self-titled, or well, I guess you could say it's Space Oddity. It's been released under both names, so you can call it whatever you want. It's a fair bet that most people have, in their life, by choice or by accident, heard some song of his, searched on Spotify, or heard in some trailer or movie or ad. If you've never heard of this album, that's probably the most surprising part of this, to be honest. Space Oddity, by all accounts, is one of his most ubiquitous songs, with almost 300 million plays on Spotify alone, and that's not to mention its existence in the aforementioned media. The album of the same name is his second studio album, released in late 1969 under Philips Records, an affiliate of Mercury, who signed him and funded the album after hearing the title song. One of the most surprising details about this album is that, despite it being only the second album, it's also the second album of his to be named the exact same thing. He self-titled the first one as well, kind of explaining why this one has had kind of a dual name since. Yet, despite its chart-topping single, the album as a whole never broke any higher than number eight on any chart during its many re-releases. It was a commercial failure and has never earned more than mixed reviews at best, either at the time or retrospectively. Criticized by Bowie and reviewers alike for being directionless, it has still been praised at least in part for being an important evolution in Bowie's songwriting, lyrics, and sound, leading into the Ziggy Stardust era and beyond. Now, if you don't know who David Bowie is, he was born David Robert Jones in England and was primarily a singer-songwriter who had a penchant for creating unique characters and personas to perform under, morphing genres from the beginning of his career to the end and earning himself in the process an earth-shattering 140 million records sold at minimum. He released a mind-boggling 26 studio albums, 10 of which went platinum in the UK, 11 of which were number one albums and charts, and earned 
confirmed in induction in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as early as 1996, seeing him release five of his albums even after that. He is largely stated to be the pioneer of a genre called glam rock, which is a subsection of the genre that saw some pop influence mixed with an incredibly heavy emphasis on the performance of the music. Outlandish hair, makeup, and outfits mixed into a bright and often androgynous stage presence added to the music just as much as the sound influences, much the same way your sense of smell adds to your sense of taste. Yet his influence widens even from there, as he is credited with bringing an artistic spin into rock, often even considered a pioneer in art rock and helping pave the way for much of the genre blending to come. And finally, he was also a force for good in confronting the then-tired, still-tired, notions of gender and sexuality, consistently presenting as androgynous with a fluid sexuality that, through his stardom, helped garner some of the growing support for these facets of modern society. And as such, even beyond his music, his impact on the world is substantial and still resonates, six years after his last album and death, and hopefully into the future. And, well, with all that being said, it's probably about time to stop with all of this a-doing and get right into it, with a pretty long episode again, but how can I help it? It's David Bowie, after all, in this week's episode of Throughline, Space Oddity, or David Bowie, or whatever you want to call it. Isn't this nice? Isn't this a nice place to be after the depression, the grief, the trauma, the uncertainty of fate of the last few albums? Doesn't it feel good to throw our worries away and drift off into space like Major Tom, far from the recurring pain of reality, the responsibilities of existence, and the smallness of society in the grand scheme of the everything in the universe? Turn our gaze outward into the stars and journey forth into whatever exciting adventure or unceasing calm awaits us beyond our pale blue dot. And wouldn't it be just truly nice to learn that this calm is what this album is about? No bigger story, no greater narrative, no moral to learn from or necessity for self-reflection and growth. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, too bad. This isn't an ASMR podcast, and we didn't come here to daydream, you lollygaggers. You wouldn't have clicked on the link if you wanted peace and quiet. You want cold, hard opinions. One man's singular and never-researched look at the literary substance of an album of music. Ripping, tearing, and shredding it into expose-like chunks of juicy, delectable analysis content. Maybe we ASMR after all. Yeah, that's right. We definitely analyze some musical records. And Space Oddity is definitely one of those their musical records. And it's definitely got some kind of meaning. And we're definitely about to figure it out. Now, I wasn't kidding from before. This album is far and away a much lighter story than the previous three to four albums we've covered on the surface. From the music to the lyrics to the general tone and feel, we're in a much better place. So it's possible that our usual shortcuts may not work. I mean, for one, the album isn't even really called Space Oddity at all. As we've 
said before, that's merely a secondary name for it, an AKA, a moniker only added to the album upon its re-release three years later, whereas the real, original name for it was just David Bowie, a self-titled album. Interesting. How will that play into the meaning of the album, I ask? Either way, the meaning of the album on the surface may seem like a pretty daunting task. For one, there are three songs over six and a half minutes long, somewhat reasonably spaced out throughout the album. Not only that, but they're all incredibly dense songs, with lyrical content that tends to avoid repetition, save for the end of the last of these three, which coincidentally is also the end of the album. All in all, actually, this album is largely lyrically focused, with few musical breaks in its runtime, the vast majority used as atmosphere in the opening track, Space Oddity. Pretty daunting indeed. At this point, 14 episodes in, however, we've developed a number of tools that can help us find the best places to start. And for now, we'll return to an old favorite, going over the first few songs and determining a short synopsis of each to try and find a trend line. The first, Space Oddity, begins our journey with a relatively straightforward story of an astronaut venturing out into the stars but ending up stranded as a result of the travel, unable to return but saluted by his ground crew and wondering about the situation, the Earth, and his place in it. Unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed is a bit of a Romeo and Juliet ballad of an upper-class girl in an unaccepted and internally combative relationship with a seemingly counterculture boy whose ilk is deemed too dirty or antithetical to the beliefs of her family, especially her father. There's a pretty strong thread of societal unrest or anti-consumerism that blends into the self-deprecation and description as well. In fact, take a listen to the fifth verse. Letter to Hermione acts as a post-breakup song, one where the protagonist slowly begins to accept more and more that the breakup may have been for the better for her, as he admits more frequently over the course of the song that she is better with her new partner. Yet there is a thread of pining, a semi-pathetic and definitely self-sorry wish for her to still think about him, despite her happiness in her new situation. And Signet Committee is the pleading of an individual on the front lines of some fight for change change, some attempt to ease the sufferings of the world, and becoming frustrated, both with the feeling that the following generation will be able to harvest the fruits of his labor while he's left behind, and also the feeling that there's more that could have been done, and there's still so much to do. A pining for a future that's better, but a small amount of distrust in how it will treat those following, and also wishing for those who follow to at least spare a glance back to their predecessors. Now, I could be wrong, but that sounds a whole lot like the previous song. There's a ton of mirroring going on comparing his lost relationship to his frustration with the rate of social change. Take a listen to the last verse of Letter to Hermione and a section of the beginning in Signet Committee to hear the reference mirroring between wanting some acknowledgement. And when he's strong, he's strong for you. And when you kiss it, something new. But did you ever call my name just by mistake? I crushed my heart to ease their pains 
And if we step one song further back to Unwashed, we can again see a thread of the relationship mixing into the idea of counterculture and societal problems. Now, counterculture as a concept refers to a subset of the population whose sense of values and ideals is markedly different from the viewed majority. In a way, many different countercultures have existed and evolved simultaneously in every recorded era of humanity, with noted specific examples as far back as the 1600s, with very little doubt that others came long before that. These can range from ones that are progressive to ones that are conservative, ones that are peaceful to ones that are violent. Technically, any idea that differs from the majority could be argued to be counterculture. However, the movements that are typically defined as modern counterculture were born around the same time as the advent of the word itself, and have gone on to pave the way for a widespread of landmark social growth, from the passing of civil rights bills to the legalization of gay marriage and the growing acceptance of gender and sexual fluidity. The biggest, most prominent goal of many aspects of counterculture is to pave the way for those ideals that they have have those values to become, well, just regular culture, existing on the outskirts for a time in order to allow those in the future to not have to be outcasts. And this really peaked in the late 60s with the hippies. For reference purposes, this album came out in 1969, the year of Woodstock, the peak of the hippie countercultural moment, and David Bowie being, well, David Bowie, there's a definite parallel to what was going on at the time, giving us some historical context to the music as well, something that is often missing from these analyses. The last song on the album even draws parallels to Woodstock itself, as the album was released after the iconic event. The only argument against it being actually about it being an early lyric in the song referencing the London sky, not the New York sky. There's a sense of love and lightness to these lyrics mixed with a softness in the music that creates a ballad to that hope for peace and love. Oh, to capture just one drop of all the ecstasy that swept that afternoon To paint that love upon a white balloon And fly it from the toughest top of all the tops that man has pushed Oh, to capture just one drop of all the ecstasy that swept that afternoon. But in this time period, leading into the world of today, I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for individuals who were pioneers on societal change, who had to experience life from the perspective of counterculture, having to be seen as outcasts, the others, the riffraff, hooligans, ruffians, just to live the way that they wanted to live, to be themselves, or to be vocal about change and supporting others. Much of the hippie movement in particular rallied around an idea of peace in wartime, equality and love mixed in with a sense of anti-authoritarian, hey, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like Unwashed too. No surprise is it then that this album mixes an idea of love and rebelliousness, a distrust of authority or establishment, while a pining for some true connection. After all, this is what was happening at the peak of this cultural shift. However, though this was the peak of the movement, it also had been going on for quite some time 
and fatigue is something easily dissuading, actively fighting momentum and leading to reflections of just how much might be left and how little time left you have to appreciate it. A truly tactile and human fear and frustration that you'll miss out on what comes next, something that could have truly been much better. The utopian future is always just out of reach. And so, this is really the space in which we find the album, straddling a line between a soft yet excited hope for the future mixed with combative feelings of frustration at the fact that he will be unable to experience all of the growth, and anger at the fact that there's still so much work to do. All of this wrapped in a package of romantic pining for a lost lover, one better taken care of now, but one whom the protagonist is selfishly wishing for some return to them. We still have a lot of details to unpack, however, including the additional extra-lengthy song in Wild-Eyed Boy from Freecloud, so let's not waste any more time and fully dive in with song one, Space Oddity. Ground control to Major Tom Wait, wait, wait. I actually don't want to start with Space Oddity. This will make more sense in a little bit, but we're actually going to skip this one for now. This is not to say that the album doesn't work thematically in order, because... Well, if I did that, I'm basically just admitting that I give up. No, it more has to do with the fact that we're lacking the context to make an understandable argument for why its position is so instrumental to the album working. So without making it too horribly complicated, we're actually going to start with song two, unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed. Firstly, what an incredibly fun song name. It almost feels like the title of an award-winning short film. Secondly, we've already described this song as a bit of a Romeo and Juliet type scenario, where a family is disapproving of the relationship of their child, here due to appearance or class divide rather than just hating the other family, as it seems in the play. I'm not quite sure what the actual conflict is in the play, but here it's obvious that the protagonist is not quite up to the prissy standards of the girl's family, even leading her at times to turn her own nose up at him, either instinctually or as a performance for her family. It's actually quite jarring, though, how disgusting Bowie describes this character. Rats, empty eye socket, a reference to a phallus, blood on his nose, rotting, etc. It's all a pretty gruesome scene, almost in an attempt to make it kind of hard to see what the girl sees in him in the choruses. Him being quite amazed that she would spend the day talking to him. And when it's somewhat clear in verse 6 that she ends up pregnant, sick from your ears to the red parquet floor, the scene is described with little tact, making it less congratulatory and more foreboding. Rather than a mutual event, one given merit by the connection and commitment to secrecy in the choruses, the song frames the pregnancy as if the protagonist dealt this controlling blow to the love interest, inflicted it upon her, and this uneasy easiness with the main character is intentional. In a way, the album is actively trying to take on a bit of a manipulative role, putting the listener on the back step and attempting to incept 
some ideas of disagreement or negative connotation. Now, this may seem like a strange tactic. If this album is meant to be supportive of the counterculture ideas, as is most believable for Bowie, then why lead the listener away on just the second song? Possibly to create a mood, possibly to lay the groundwork for a more satisfying redemption arc, but it feels more likely to me that it could be to elicit an understanding of the treatment of individuals who were cast aside in this era, implanting false and exaggerated depictions to promote a kind of disgust response, while bringing subtle attention to these stereotypical depictions in the fifth verse. Right in the midst of two other verses attempting to paint this individual as a bit of a weirdo, this verse begins a trend of breaking down little facets of the real world in its flaws. There's the shredding of meaning in consumerism, a sandwich fragmented by technology, electric tomatoes on credit card rye bread. There's a fear of predators preying on children caught under the false convictions of people who can pretend to be, or technically even be, authority figures, like the Queen. And finally, there's an understanding of the death and destruction in the world, a constant barrage of evil that drives the protagonist to the brink. Noticing these themes is purposefully obscured, instead leaning into the irrational fear and disgust of counterculture to highlight how little people paid attention to the real crux of the issues being presented, instead focusing on external cosmetic complaints as a method of classist superiority. And in the following song, somewhat a hidden song, we get the incredibly short Don't Sit Down. It's barely a song, rather a little ditty, but its place here effectively serves as a roadblock. The only true lyrical content here is the phrase, don't sit down. This song, with this lyric especially, acts according to a few different functions. First of all, it's setting the stage for the rest of the album. We're only three songs in, so buckle up because we have a ton more to talk about. Second, the laugh at the end of the song introduces an element of absurdity, but also realism, grounding the album into being a personal project, one unmistakably from the perspective of David Bowie, but one that understands that the situations being presented are kind of ridiculous in the fact that they were happening at all. But finally, Don't Sit Down acts as an antithesis to the common phrase, sit down, get comfortable, as a signal to expect to not feel comfortable for the duration of the album, that it will cover difficult subjects. But maybe not quite yet, at least not in so many words or a common enough metaphor. After all, the character has only just begun to point out these societal issues he's been noticing, mainly focused on his relationship to a girl, a girl who we find out is named Hermione, and also find out that she's left him in this song. Letter to Hermione. Something tells me that you hide when all the world is warm and tired. You cry a little in the dark. Well, so do I. I'm not quite sure what you're supposed to say. 
The story told here is pretty straightforward on the surface, every verse slowly revealing more and more how the protagonist feels about her, but also where she's moved on to. Verse 1 basically fantasizes about her still being with him, a fantasy betrayed by the second line as he sweeps the pillow clean, removing the dust and crumbs that cover her side of the bed, the empty, unused section. Here begins his standard procedure throughout the song of assuming that she is in just as much hurt as he is, or that she feels the same kind of lack of closure or longing that he does. He has no evidence for this, all based on assumptions, as he even admits to such in verse 2, when his belief that she cries a little bit in the dark is founded on the simple feeling that something tells me. Not a fact, anywhere close, but merely a hunch. In fact, it's almost entirely refuted by the end of the song, where it's described that she sparkles like a different girl, and that her new partner is in kind lovely to her, as when he is strong, he is strong for you. There's not even a hint of sarcasm nor disdain in his voice here, showing even beyond his likely frustration that maybe he isn't right for her, merely grasping at straws and hopelessly clutching on to vapor. But this song betrays a bigger concern. In Unwashed, the protagonist, who we'll just refer to as David from here on out as his ex has already been given a name, David was experiencing these visions of corrupt society in a way that felt painful, but distant and abstract at the same time. Letter seems to move away from this idea just as much as that verse in Unwashed was sandwiched within his personal love story, leaving and departing with the same abruptness. But Letter has another facet between the story told in the verses, hidden within the short choruses dotted throughout. For the most part, these sections seem to echo a feeling of confusion, one of not knowing what we're supposed to do. Take a listen to the first one. I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to do So I've been writing just for you So I've been writing just for you. It seems clear that him not necessarily knowing what to do may actually be acting separately from his unrequited love, to which he is using this as a distraction, this exploration of a simple, albeit broken, relationship as a way to ignore some other issue. And it could actually be signaling to look at the song in another way, one that is clearly defined in the following song, Signet Committee. Most clearly is this parallel between the two songs drawn in the first section of the song. I bless you madly, sadly as I tie my shoes, I love you badly, just in time times I guess. Because of you, I need to rest. Because it's you that sets the test. I love you badly. Because of you, I need to rest. Because it's you that sets the test. Following off the heels of Letter, it's hard not to compare and link these two songs. They both seem to include reference to a love that may not be reciprocating, as well as hints at some deeper idea. And that idea is the revolution of progressive ideals, and the beginnings of David's frustration with the still-damaged state of the world, despite what he's given up to get it to the better-than-it-was state it occupied at the time. I crushed my heart to 
ease their pains. No thought for me remains. Nothing can they spare. What of me? In other words, I did everything I could do to make it better for you in the future, and you repay me by taking those opportunities to live better? That seems unfair. There's even a section of the song later where he attributes these sacrifices as powers that are then used by the future generation, leaving him damned without time to make amends. And these lines help pave the road for the reinterpretation of the opening chorus of this song and the verses of the last. This relationship that David is lamenting may or may not have happened, but it is being used as a metaphor to describe how he feels watching the next generation take advantage of the paths he paved, the exhaustion he feels to which he sings that he needs to rest. Society, played by Hermione here, has outgrown him and moved to a new generation, a new era that sees her much happier than in his version of the world, his generation grieving for what they could have had. The rest of the song includes an incredibly diverse array of societal failings and criticisms, all encircling another interesting theme of the album, where the pursuit of some perceived good masks the collateral bad that might fall out as a result. Take a listen to a section later in the song that sees David recite performative phrases from a story that slowly morph into a facsimile of the original intention and lead to a situation that causes more harm than good. I will kill for the good of the fight, for the right to be right, and I open my eyes to look around, and I see a child laid slain on the ground. This song is largely a treatise on criticizing the motions or performance of protest, where the only goal is its appearance rather than its outcome. Rapidly cycling between lines like planted seeds of rebirth and stabbed the backs of fathers, advocates for peace and violence simultaneously in a disingenuous maelstrom of conflicting ideals, which David finds particularly loathsome. All of this culminates in a wish at the end of the song to have the capacity to believe that a light's shining through somewhere. Before the end of the song sees David shouting out that he wants to believe and he wants to live, that he wants to see this through, wants to see it get better because he desperately wants to believe it's right on the horizon, despite all of the shit. Overall, however, we get a sense that David is at this point desperate and begging rather than appreciative or truly hopeful, frustrated and feeling neglected by history, having sacrificed his life for this love, for this future that then leaves him for greener pastures, a younger demographic that can affect even more change, an idea that leaves him with a sour taste in his mouth and criticism levied at their possible immaturity or rashness in it. And so, still paralleled to his love life, he moves into a seemingly unfulfilling relationship with a new individual named Janine. Oh, 
First of all, the guitar part in this song is so unbelievably catchy, and the way that Bowie sings the name Janine is so bizarre and memorable that I've had a good portion of this song stuck in my head for nigh on two weeks. Second of all, wow, does he not seem like he's having a good time in this relationship. From the fact that this individual seems to be largely too much for him, even specifically saying that she's too intense, I'll have to keep you in your place, to essentially referring to himself as a shell of a person in the chorus, he's clearly attempting to reconcile a new version of himself post-change. He's battle-scarred and weary, exhausted from his cultural fight and from the loss of his true love, Hermione, to the point where he claims he has thoughts that even I can't face. But there's an interesting read buried in the subtext. From all accounts, it seems pretty clear that Janine is ravenous for David, putting in a tremendous amount of effort to truly get to know him, to work her way past his barriers. She may be aggressive in her approach, but the song rarely, if ever, admonishes Janine for her tenacity, rather just fearful of what it may uncover. Take a listen to the chorus. If you take an axe to me, you'll kill another man, not me at all. Now, at first glance, this seems like a bad thing. Killing is pretty universally accepted, as most of the time, pretty bad. But is it? At least here? If we look at verse 2, there's quite a few references to her as a distraction or a salve, a comfort of some kind. You're a lazy stream in which my thoughts could drown, and we can glide along. I've caught your wings for laughs. This verse even finds him asking her to stay. The music itself in the song is also bright and silly, kind of lilting in a soft summer way, emphasizing this comfort. So then, is it possible that by telling her she won't harm him when she starts breaking through his walls, that he's inviting her to uncover his true self buried beneath the rubble of his fight? And if Hermione is reminiscent of his fight for change around him, a cultural divide turned into a torch passed forth to a newer generation, a new lover, then could Janine be his delivery, his gift of the comfort of a better world? One still rough around the edges, sure, but one a bit more accepting and a bit more willing to let him be himself, let him be comfortable. But as always, following a tiny bit of growth, there's always a moment in the hero's journey, in the adventure of the albumatic throughline, that sees our protagonist suffer some kind of setback. One that lasts one or more songs before finally resolving in the end. Well, here we are, at the beginning of that, with an occasional dream. But actually, is it even really a setback this time? Or I guess yet? Take a listen to the chorus and pay particular attention to some of the backing instrumentation. I see your face in mine. I keep a photograph. It burns my wall with time. Yeah, there's no way this is a setback song. With those flutes and little flourishes, not even the tiniest bit of a chance. 
No, actually, this is a growth song. For those keeping track for this and the last song, we're in the back half of the album, so it's likely that some major shift has happened, and we can really see that here, especially in the choruses. Yes, he mentions some personal madness. Yes, both verses make extensive references to their relationship. I recall how we lived. We'd talk with our eyes of the sweetness of our lives, and we'd sleep oh so close. On one hand, these are still a bit clinging, a bit pining for his lost love. But on the other hand, these are all positive references. There's some minor references to the loss, but the major feeling of abandonment has vanished, instead replaced by gentle and happy recollection found almost exclusively within an occasional dream. Here, a little bit, he's moved on but only in a single way. He may be more accepting of the world he's grown to change, but the disasters of the past and the continuing horrors of the present still hold weight and influence, and the roiling struggle for an updated view of the world and the acceptance of society is constant and unavoidable. And in Wild-Eyed Boy from Free Cloud, David is given a vision. A vision that seems like a fantastical adaptation of some horrible event that's happened for real. As a quick rundown of the story in the song, an outsider is set to be hanged in front of a town at the foot of a mountain. The town seems unsure about it, ultimately convincing themselves of the event based on his apparent otherness, citing the madness in his eyes due to an aspect of him they don't understand. He pleads into the night that he understands that their differences make it seemingly difficult to coexist, to be really you and really me, but that he is still just him, not some undefined other. He is still someone. Take a listen. It's really Yet, despite this, no salvation comes to him at night, and he is slowly preparing for hanging, to the growing uncertainty and dismay from the crowd, especially considering the boy having a smile on his face, in acceptance of his fate, in the knowledge that they merely just don't understand. However, the mountain he is from has other plans, personifying itself as a protector of him, as kin, and begins to cause a landslide down into the town, destroying much of it, even against the cries of the boy who claims that if they're all dead, no one will be left to bury him, to respect him at least then. After the disaster subsides, the only one left is someone who wanted peace, alone in the rubble. Well, holy shit, this is a pretty intense story, one of the longer songs on the album, and one that deftly works its way around a rather sensitive and controversial topic among those who are the loudest when it comes to change. Nearly all protests and riots and fights for change throughout history, especially recently, have had the difficult nature of riding the line between being effective enough to encourage actionable change and being peaceful enough to avoid immediate dismissal by appearing too violent or 
too demanding. We've talked in the past about the slow growing unrest in protesting groups and how their eventual cascade into violent situations is something almost expected when their actions are repeatedly ignored for long enough. But no amount of effectiveness nor justification for these types of escalations is ever able to ignore the fact that people on both sides and in the middle are hurt or killed in the process. Sometimes the fight for change has horrific consequences. This is not to say the results are never worth it in the end, but there's still a sense of horror and disaster to these events. And the song seems clearly advocating for the fact that it's important to notice when something does go a bit too far. In some instances of change, the main villain is not those resistant to change, but the misinformation given to them to make them feel the way they do, the manipulation of their ideals due to unknowns or purposeful confusion. The boy had accepted his fate, having noticed the look of uncertainty on their faces, so that despite his verbal and explicit cry for kinship or understanding being ignored, he was comforted by the fact that they weren't evil, just misunderstanding. However, through through its rapid act of defense, his kin, the mountain, possibly even his people, and in this case then abstracting to other counterculture individuals or other advocates for change, end up slaughtering the population of the town without prejudice, without due process or consideration for those who were open to change but didn't have a catalyst. This is absolutely not to say that not defending those being ridiculed or mocked or hurt or punished in some way that is immoral or unjustifiable is always the right path, if ever the right path, for we should always defend those in need, but that wanton and cold-blooded violence is rarely the right answer either. There are people who are capable of change but merely do not have the right tools, and there are even others who may be going through issues that are unseen, lashing out in a way that's more reflective of a different societal dilemma that they're experiencing. And this is what we see in God Knows I'm Good. Crying God knows I'm good. God knows I'm good. God knows I'm good. God may look the other way today. Honestly, this is a really simple song, but one that has profound implications to David and leads into the final song. Here, David simply experiences an old woman who reluctantly and fearfully attempts to steal a steak in a supermarket. He does not turn her in or help her out. He merely watches as she nervously strides back to the entrance and is stopped and pulled aside, likely by management, before she faints to the ground. All the while, she is speaking, either out loud or to herself, that she will be forgiven for this, that God knows I'm good. Likely that she wouldn't be doing this unless she felt she had to. And this is really the entire song, but it exposes a new idea to David. Whereas before, in the first half of the album, these problems with society were either specific people he knew, like Hermione's parents and Unwashed, or abstract ideas and forms like in Letter, bleeding into blaming people and groups of people in general for their performance of wanting change in Signet. Now, in the second half, these ideas are abstracting again, but in a way that seems to crystallize. The people aren't the problem. The systems are the problem. The situations being created by the values of society and the institutions set in place don't just hurt those on the outside, but create situations which hurt those seemingly on the inside, or worse still, create situations where the two sides are pitted against each other and both lose. In the end, the real enemies aren't each other, but the rigid and inflexible 
possible ideas of the pillars of civilization built long ago. Of course, these are being sustained by people who accurately are problems, but these are not the many, but the few, the rest most often living in varying degrees of ignorance. And these realizations, and his previous growth in Janine and throughout, all coalesce into a version of himself that is present in the knowledge that there is more work to be done, that the world isn't fixed, not by a long shot, but is comforted by the knowledge of what has been accomplished, and the sheer knowledge of knowing that people aren't inherently bad. And in memory of a free festival, he allows himself to be happy, to reminisce on a period of good, and celebrate the future future influx of good positive movement toward a better world. We scan the skies with rainbow eyes and saw machines of every shape and size. We talked with tall Venusians passing through. And Peter tried to climb aboard, but the captain shook his head. Basically, the entire song is a slow ballad of different moments of joy. It was heaven. We claimed the very source of joy ran through. To paint that love on a white balloon, and we walked back on the road unchained. The general vibe of this song is of acceptance and togetherness and community, all things we've always advocated for on this podcast and firmly entrenched in the predominant countercultures of that time period. There's a sense of hope and optimism here that wasn't present before, a newfound understanding of the difficulties that all people face, and the wish for a bond between them, a hope for peace in a time when peace was very nearly only hope, driven by those fervently spreading it. The song has one final change at the end though, a bit of a secondary section as if a different song entirely. And this is where we're going to finally bring up Space Oddity. Remember how I said we were going to skip it because it didn't have its context? Well, here's its context, the last section of the last song on the album. A section that repeats over and over again, well, just take a listen. The sun machine is coming down and we're gonna have a party. If you're like me when I first listened to this, you're likely thinking, what the hell is Bowie talking about? A sun machine? What's next? A man on the moon? Oh, wait, Space Oddity almost has this. A man drifting out into space, untethered from the Earth with little recourse and little help, lost in the cosmos, alone, far above the moon, but still, witnessing how the stars look different and free. Alone, but free. The song even holds these majestic musical sections of exploration and wonder. Take a listen. So if Space Oddity begins our album with an alone freedom, separated from the Earth, and the last section of the last song explores the idea of a manufactured sun whose absence is celebratory, then I believe we have enough material to wrap up our breakdown. 
This album begins with the idea that the protagonist is lost in their direction, separated from the rest of society through the exploration of new ideas. Beautiful ones, but so far away from what the world experiences. No longer under the influence of that burning control, but unable to share it with the world. Unable to affect change out there. So he finds a relationship with society, him still divergent encounter, but loving and interested, bringing the stuffy ideals of the time into new space, albeit imperfectly. Upon effecting this change, however, society begins to move past him, leaving him behind and wanting for that attention. Frustrated by the amount of total progress being less than what he wanted, but in a state where no one will listen to him or appreciate what he's done, he struggles to find hope and life in the new world that's leaving him behind. But a new individual, a representation of this new world, finds him and works to get to know him and break down those barriers, openly loving him in a way that he didn't have before with the the previous relationship, one that he had to fight for. And in this new love, he grows to respect the relationship from before, his time in the spotlight of change before respecting that it's over. And in this respect, he learns that the world is still struggling and that violence is a violent answer to a problem that doesn't involve you versus me, but rather us versus them, the ones in charge, the societal leaders who permit and encourage these divides. Having this knowledge gives him respect for where they've come from, knowing they have some way to go, but embracing the warmth of the moment and hoping beyond hope that someday those institutions will be brought down. The sun machine, the manufactured control, the thing that is perceived to hold the world together, and when it is brought down, he won't have to leave Earth to drift away to experience that peace. They'll be able to do it right there in the new dark, lit by their hope, and just party. And that brings us to the end of David Bowie's self-titled, or Space Oddity, depending on which year you look at it, an album that echoes a lot of the frustrations of the time and since of those who do fight for change and fight to be heard and see the world either stall or fail to move on or leave them behind. It's a brave way to spend one's life at the risk of being an outcast or discarded or hurt or even killed for something that does become all-consuming for many. Something that does not have any peace, something that is only thought to have peace for those down the line. This album explores a world that's moving on but still has troubles, but yet in the end holds on to that hope that these things keeping all of us apart will one day be dismantled. And in that moment, the world, slowly, one voice at a time, adding to the repetition, to the swelling of noise and sound and warmth, all of us will be free and have a party in that new world. Together, all of us, at least just for a moment. Stick around after the break for a conversation about the album. Christian here. Yes, it's still through line. You haven't been bamboozled, but where's the little sound thingy? Where's the conversation, the juicy dialogue? Don't worry, I have it queued up, my fingers hovering over the button, or, well, my cursor is ready to drag it in when I edit this together later. But before all of the conversing hullabaloo, I finally got a taste of every podcaster's greatest opportunity a promo code, and also, I guess, the ability to talk about a product they're actually excited about. Or, well, it's both a service and a product. 
One of the biggest problems that I have with putting together this whole throughline package is knowing how to give the people what they want. Which musicians to cover, how funny I should be, if I should start a TikTok. But one thing that the people often want from a business or project or property they're passionate about is merch. And what better way to personalize your merch than with stickers? Sticker Mountain is an online experience that is dedicated to delivering you the best stickers and labels so that you can sell your products, grow your business, and focus on your passions. Simple interactive interfaces, competitive prices, and a support team that has the same passion and attention to detail as if they were right down the road from you come together into a package that's damn near impossible to beat. With tons of material options and bulk discounts on bigger orders, it's something that even I can't resist, and frankly, I'm a bit of an analysis nerd if you couldn't tell yet. Their color matching is a highlight and something they pride themselves on, and for good reason. At Sticker Mountain, you'll find everything you need to get the product labels, merch stickers, and more onto your booths, into your stores, and into the hands of your customers. And by listening to this podcast, you've unlocked a special reward. For a limited time, you can use the code THROUGHLINE2022, all lowercase, to get 10% off your next order at StickerMountain.com. Make the most of it. Stock up. I can personally attest to the quality and care that goes into each order, and I'm confident you'll be excited you look them up too. Go see what they have at StickerMountain.com and use the code THROUGHLINE2022 for that lovely, lovely discount. Now, for all y'all that stuck around, time to hit that funny little sound button. Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done doing the breakdown of the album, and now we're going to have a conversation about what reviewers, fans, and others have said about the album. And with me today, I have a special guest and the co-host of Audio Judo, Kyle. How's it going? Good. How about yourself? I'm good. This album worried me in a way. <laughs> David Bowie is such a an icon in the industry and an icon in the way where I have almost no knowledge of... <laughs> <laughs> Like, I know his major hits. I'm like, yeah, I've heard Starman. I've heard Space Oddity. I've heard Let's Dance and all of that. But he's got 26 albums. I've heard maybe off the top of my head could probably name 10 songs. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a deep well to dive into. There's so much content he's done so much over the years. And so much of it is so different because he had all these different. I mean, he spanned from when he started in the late 60s all the way until, you know, his last album came out in 2015. Yeah. And they were all fair. Fairly successful hits, except for the few in the beginning and a few in the 80s. And they were all incredibly influential as well in the amount of other musicians that listened to Bowie as like, oh, this is where music is headed. We should follow along. I find it super interesting that you picked this album for your podcast. Right. Because this to me is like out of all of his albums, it's like when you said, oh, David Bowie, I was like, oh, cool. You could pick Ziggy Stardust or you could pick (laughs) any of his albums have a really clear like line through them. Uh, right. A really clear through line of like, hey, this is where it begins. This is the whole theme of the album, except this one. <laughs> right. Yeah. David Bowie has gone on the record to say that he didn't necessarily have a direction for this album. That was one of the main criticisms that I saw levied against it. But you want to know the real reason why I chose this album? Yeah. I didn't have the 60s anywhere in my repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like looking at like, oh, what artists could I cover? And I'm like, what artists do I know have albums that came out in the 60s? And I'm like, oh, David Bowie's Space Oddity came out in the 60s. Let's just pick that one. And that's, that's, that's the, <laughs> the amount of research that I did for that. That's good, though. It means that you're picking something new. You're picking something that's not necessarily straight in your wheelhouse. So it's right. a little bit more challenging for you to, to get around it, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And it means you're actually learning something and having to put in the work. So you're not just sitting down and talking about something you already know about for an hour. Right. Yeah. I am curious. I, I don't have a lot of history with David Bowie other than his hits. How did you specifically get into David Bowie? So I started to really listen to Bowie after my sister started to listen to Bowie. Okay. She was three years younger than I am. But when we were teenagers, she had much better musical taste than I did. <laughs> I mean, she was listening to a lot of the 80s, like new wave stuff. And this would have been late 90s, early 2000s. So it wasn't of the time. But she listened to a lot of the 80s new wave stuff, Nine right. Inch Nails, a lot of alternative stuff that was not music that I necessarily enjoyed at the time. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, you know, obviously I'd hear a little bit of it from time to time. Right. And Bowie was kind of one of those, you know, like you said, a lot of people recognize the hits. But then she would be listening to an album and I'd be like, oh, I heard, for example, if she was listening to this album, you know, I'd hear Space Oddity and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I recognize that song. And then 10 minutes later, I'd walk past the room again. I'd be like, is this the same album? Is this, you know, this doesn't feel quite the same, but it turns out it was. And then I started to sort of, you know, oh, maybe I should listen to some more David Bowie. And then I kind of fell in love with David Bowie. Right. So listening to Space Oddity. So your sister was listening to this album specifically then? She kind of listened to his whole catalog. Okay. All over the place. She mostly listened to a lot of his later stuff from like the 70s and even some of the weirder stuff from the 80s, like the Tin Machine era type of stuff. Uh, I think... I would say probably Scary Monsters and Super Creeps and Let's Dance from the early 80s are probably the two that she listened to the most. Okay. But kind of all over the place for her as far as Bowie goes. She's a big fan too. Sure. I mean, he's got a lot to pull from. 26 albums is a lot of albums. Right. And I do want to come back to Tin Machine at some point, but this album specifically, this is his second album, but to most people, it's really his first. Yeah. (laughs) This is the first one where you have like the beginnings of what we know Bowie as. Yeah, really his first album, which is also, I mean, technically these are both titled David Bowie. Right, which is insane. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, why? uh, Yeah, that's a whole nother story. But thankfully, somebody somewhere in marketing was like, you know, maybe we should start calling this second one Space Oddity to kind of set it off. Mm -hmm. And at least it it got people to, oh, hey, I love that song when they played it on the radio. Now I know where I can get it. Right. But he was doing this thing in the late 60s where he was trying to set himself up to sort of be a British Bob Dylan. Yeah, I was reading about that. Yeah, he was very... Very much. I mean, he was inspired by Bob Dylan. He was inspired by a lot of the musical sounds that were coming out of the United States and the countercultural movement that was happening in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, I mean, I hate to call it hippie music, but hippie music. Mm -hmm. People now, I guess, associate it with the troubadour sound, like Donovan type of stuff. Okay. He was very much trying to set himself up as the British version of that. Yeah. And it just didn't work. You know, amazing musician. I like some of the music off of his first album and kind of from that era, some of the singles that he released before this are not bad, but it just didn't resonate with the public. Yeah. And thankfully, he got a second chance, got a new manager in 1967 or 68, I forget exactly when, named Kenneth Pitt. Right. And basically, it was at that same time, he's like, no, we need to go in a different direction. What are we doing to make the music sound good and be successful rather than just be of a type? Right. And what I find most interesting about that is this is kind of the very first Bowie pivot. Sure. Which he would do over and 
and over and over again where he's like, you know what? I'm kind of done with this style of music. How do I pivot into the next one? Yeah. And out of all of his future albums, I think this is really the only time where we see it happening on the album. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Because (laughs) if that makes sense, you can kind of see there's some of what would come from Bowie in the future. And there's also a lot of throwbacks to that sort of Bob Dylan troubadour sound combined together on this album. Yeah. After this, it all became, hey, I've picked where I'm going. Now let's make an album around. Sure. And I think that kind of like adds into generally the kind of the feel of this album is that a lot of people were saying that it's directionless, but that re invention of himself mm. was so core to his identity and his success that his constant reinvention is almost as important to his influence as his music and sound. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that is one of the big things that people misunderstand about this album is because all of his future albums, he had already done the reinvention and then gone off and done the album Yeah. versus here where we're actually seeing the reinvention happening. Yeah. I think that that's what's confusing to a lot of people and why a lot of people listen to this and they're like, oh, it has no you know through line. It has no cohesive sound to it or anything. Well, yeah, of course it wouldn't because you're literally hearing somebody say, hey, I have some of these songs that I've written that are where I was and some of these songs that are where I want to go. Right. Let's just throw them together and make an album and see if we can make some money off of it. Yeah. And that kind of mixing of the past, present and future is so it's so embedded into this album because reading this album, I was definitely reading it from I have the benefit and also the detriment of seeing this album from 50. How many years has it been? 50 years. I have the benefit and detriment of looking at this album from that time period, because when I was reading the album, I didn't know how old Bowie was. I probably should have looked up how old he was when he wrote this album. He must have been pretty young. He was like 21 or something like that. But the sound of this album and the meaning that I found in the album is someone who's already so tired, so exhausted (laughs) from like fighting for cultural change where you are getting this sense that he like almost has an understanding of where we're going and how he's already going to feel about it. Yet he's always somebody who has felt much older than he actually was Mm -hmm. until he got old, in which case he felt much younger than he was. In all honesty, everything you look at him do interviews and things when he was young. And there's one really famous one where he had founded. Oh, I forget the exact name of the group, but it's basically like young people with long hair who want to be taken seriously. Right. (laughs) And he goes on TV and the interviewer is just such a jerk to him. Sure. Just so much. Well, you're a young person with long hair you can't understand what society's like and he's so well spoken and so you know well actually we do and here's why we want to change things you shouldn't judge people based on their looks you shouldn't judge people based on the fact that they have long hair we can be intelligent we can be smart we have a lot to say and to give to society mm-hmm. and the guy just will not he's just absolutely relentless just well you're you're wrong because you have long hair and Bowie's <laughs> just like I mean the, it literally ends with him just kind of shrugging like well guess I'm not going to change your mind like right but he he does that through his whole career. Yeah. He is very much always this incredibly mature old soul of a person who, whether he could actually see what was coming or whether it was some kind of an inclination to, yeah. you know, obviously nobody will ever know, but he definitely always had that feeling around him that, like you said, he's tired here because he knows we're in for a rough ride for the next few years. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of a weird place where this album sits because doing the research, there's one aspect of his 
career that struck me as like completely out of left field. I'm specifically talking about when he was in his Thin White Duke era and was like Mm -hmm. really, really deep in a cocaine addiction and made some pretty not so fun remarks. (laughs) Yeah, I think that every famous person has this sort of I don't know what you want to call it. These sort of periods that they go through where they almost intentionally become an asshole. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Whether they think it's to rile everyone up and convince them to like, you know, hey, you should hate me. I shouldn't be famous anymore. Right. Or whether it's just something that happens. I mean, who knows? But it is a cycle that happens over and over and over again, even with, you know, people who you don't want to believe are like that. People who are... You know they have not had those type of feelings up till that point, at least publicly. Right. And then suddenly there's a turnaround and they do. Right. And it's like, "Mm, that's a little weird. But the reason I wanted to bring that up is because we were talking about how he has this sense of evolution throughout his entire body of work and reinventing himself. And I think that that period of time is so important to his lasting influence today. Because, yes, he was kind of a dick for a pretty (laughs) a substantial period of time when he had this cocaine addiction he was making pretty awful fascist remarks but then a few years later he had this really really long bout of trying to get clean and ended up getting clean breaking the cocaine addiction and then went on to not only retract those statements but actively work to fight against them, becoming visibly disgusted when people made racist remarks, and then creating an album with Tin Machine that was so anti-fascist that it was panned for being too preachy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that is one of the reasons why, looking at the whole, you can look at it and say, okay, he was definitely not himself during that period. Sure, Drugs, whatever you want to say, it was definitely not how he actually felt. Mm -hmm. Or if it was, at the time, he was able to actually change his mind and come around and say, okay, I was wrong about this. I apologize. And here's what I'm going to do to actively try to fix what I did. Yeah. And most of the time, at best for celebrities, you get a hollow apology and then they move on to their next million dollar project. Sure. And the fact that he was willing to put in the time and say, no, no, we need to actually do things about this, I think is one of the reasons why he still had that staying power afterward. He wasn't somebody that was just forgotten and washed away into history. He was able to kind of make even yet another comeback and continue on. Right. Yeah. And evolution as people is such an important part of kind of developing as a society. And he was a beacon for both the complexity of humanity and the growth and change kind of possible in everyone. Oh, absolutely. I I think, too, that one of the big things about his reinventions are that they always seem to happen right before the entire rest of the music industry got there. Sure. And whether it was because he was dragging them along with him in the direction he wanted to go or whether it was because he saw which direction they were going in, Mm -hmm. I think that that always helped him in being able to say, okay, look, I'm here. This is what's going to be popular. And a lot of people over the years have criticized Bowie as kind of playing to the popularity sometimes, you know, almost selling out in a way. But I have always kind of viewed that in his case anyways, as a good thing, because it meant that he was able to stay relevant. He was able to continue sharing what he wanted to share and creating art that continued that, you know, it was still financially viable. So he could keep saying, oh, well, I'm going to now go do the next thing. Yeah, that's kind of going into the whole idea 
of like, uh, oh, I hate the system, but you kind of have to be in the system to change the system in a way. Yeah. He's one of those people that you either look at him as a whole and say, oh, he did completely change himself so many different times. And each time it was something that was very influential. Sure. Or you look at each little part and you say, wow, he was really successful for only this part. And the rest of it is not meaningless, but not as successful. And I think that a lot of people look at it both ways because a lot of people only know certain eras of Bowie and they won't listen to anything else. Sure. And then a lot of other people know Bowie as a whole and say, oh, well, you know, maybe right now I want to listen to 80s era Bowie. Maybe right now I want to listen to, you know, Thin White Duke or Ziggy Stardust or Troubadour Bowie or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The main interesting part about this album specifically and kind of that whole idea as a whole that he had so many different things that you could kind of pick apart is that he's never been the type of person to go and explain anything. Oh, no. And one of the peculiar things about this album is that it's been out for so long without like any 100% firm information. So there's like a million different theories about what each song means, <laughs> especially Space Oddity. Oh, yeah. The one that always comes up, because of course it does, is that it's about heroin. Yeah, I have that one written. <laughs> a, a lot of people have said, you know, the countdown at the beginning is right before you inject heroin. And when you hit zero, that wah, 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 wah noise is supposed to be something somebody getting high literally in the song they're you know out in space sure. and then the rest of the song is them coming down from that high and then dying <laughs> oh <laughs> Maybe, maybe not. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know. Could be. The main argument for that theory seems to be like a throwaway line in one interview that he did one yeah. time where he said like, oh yeah, I dabbled in smack once or something like that. Yeah. The timing lines up because I think he said I tried it once in like 1968 or something and it wasn't for me. But it, it's like, okay, so one throwaway line and then he comes out with this song later on and somebody finds one kind of connection to it. Sure. You know. Maybe. Yeah. Had this happened now, I would say, oh, absolutely. I can see why people made this connection. This happened pre-internet. Right. So <laughs> it's like, how did somebody, somebody had to have read so many magazines to put right. all this together. So yeah, whether that's true or not, again, who knows? The real obvious one, the real blunt one is, you know, it was the 60s. We were yep. going to the moon. We were sending men into space. There was a space race was at its height right then. And taken on its surface, it really is about an astronaut who goes up into space and then his spaceship breaks and he's trapped there mm -hmm. and slowly dies in space while his spaceship burns up on re-entry. Yeah. Again, you take it on face value, it certainly fits. It sure. certainly is about that, but is that what he actually intended it to be about? Who knows? Probably not. There's an interview from 1969, and take this with a grain of salt because I found this interview written in the like a Facebook post and it was just like <laughs> written out in the post body. It's supposed to be from 1969, a like phone call with Gordon Coxill for New Musical Express. But essentially in it, Bowie says, my songs are all from the heart and they are wholly personal to me. And I would like people to accept them as such. As likely as not, there's nothing there but the words and music you hear at one listening. So he wasn't trying to say anything in particular, it seems, <laughs> a lot of the time. You're just trying to, like, create a work that would be witnessed. And he wanted to be re revered as a writer. But I don't think he was necessarily trying to do anything at the time of, oh, this connects to this, to this connects to this. And, like, this is about heroin and all of that stuff. He's just like, yeah, we're going into space. So, like, we'll do that. <laughs> See, I'm very much of the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. Sure. So I would say that's probably what it really is. But 
in retrospect, so much of his music does get so much deeper later on yeah. to some people. Yeah. You got to put that qualifier in there to some people. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but because of that, I think a lot of people go back and look at his earlier stuff and say, oh, no, it had to have some kind of a deep meaning. It had to have uh, tricky little things. You know, he picked this word instead of this word and he did this instead of that. And people want to find deeper meanings in these things because they enjoy it and they wanted to speak to them. I think that it can speak to you at just a surface level if you let it. Yeah, I think that goes into this. This is something I've talked about a lot on the podcast. Music as a whole is kind of one of the main powerful instrumental parts of how we perceive ourselves and our world. So when somebody is creating a work of art that to them may mean something or to them may not mean something, but has enough of that abstract ability or even surface level ability to invoke some idea and allow possible interpretations allows people to bend it and twist it to whatever they need in the moment. Yeah. And I think that artists, it's almost, I'm not going to say it's better, but it's almost better when artists don't describe what something is plainly, because then you are given the leeway to do whatever you want with it. Find whatever meaning you need to find. I would definitely agree with that. It kind of takes away some of the enjoyment when you know exactly what something is supposed to be. Sure. When somebody immediately says, this represents this, it is exactly this. I designed it to look like these things and I made it to sound like this. And I chose these colors because they are supposed to directly represent this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's left open to interpretation, it has a different meaning to everybody who views it. And it's much more personal because maybe one person views it from a real place of despair and it's a very sad work for them. And somebody else, you know, views it on the happiest day of their life. And for them, it's an amazing work of art that gives them joy and happiness and pleasure for every time they view it after that or listen to it. I always think about how weird it is to consider how reflective of my own personal ideals and things that I notice or fear in the world, how reflective my reads of these albums are. Like Hmm. one of the key influences of Unwashed was the loss of his father, or so they say. And that's not something I was able to notice or read into. But I do notice groups pushing for societal change and personally witness some of the failings of modern society. So that's a much easier read for me to find. And that's the read that I did find. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You, you, You go to what you know. Yeah. So, you know, if you're living in a society where people are pushing for a bunch of change, surprise, when you listen to music that even has a bare thread of that in it, you're going to immediately latch on to that and go after it. Yeah. To go back to, you know, how you said that Bowie was always a little cagey about when anybody would ask him what his music was about. Yeah. And he would always say, well, it's, you know, however you want to experience it or whatever. There's a pretty good interview and I wish I could remember more details about it. It's probably from the 70s or 80s, which really narrows it down, where he's talking to an interview and the interview viewer asks him, well, so what is this album about? And he says, well, what do you think it's about? He says, I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. You're the one that created it. And he says, well, what do you think that it's about? And the interviewer is like, well, I'm not really sure. I need to find a way to interpret it. And Bowie says, well, exactly. It's what everybody who's listening to it should do is they should listen to it and they should pick for themselves what it's about because it's not my job as an artist to tell you what it's about. My job is just to present the art. Right. I think that's a really good wrap up around that idea. Uh, Any final thoughts on the album? Yeah. So, you know, this is not one of my favorite Bowie albums, if I'm honest with you. Mm -hmm. It is one that I've only listened to a few times 
games from beginning to end. That being said, it does have a lot in it. And, you know, like we've already gone over, it, it's a fascinating look at somebody changing their style. Yeah. And it's a fascinating look at really early Bowie. So if you're a Bowie fan from later, go back and give it a listen. I definitely think it's better than his, you know, quote unquote first album. <laughs> seems to be the general consensus. <laughs> I definitely think, you know, Space Oddity is obviously the standout here. Everybody knows that song. Sure. Signet Committee, though, is a really interesting song. Very, very long. It's almost 10 minutes long. Yeah. But it's a very interesting song in that it kind of goes over the idea of the countercultural movement at the time, but it's also a little bit of a deridement of the countercultural movement. Yeah, his concerns of it. Yeah, he's kind of sick of people being lazy. He's like, no, if we want to change society, go out and change society. Stop being so lazy and passive about it. Right. Not just the performance of it, but like the actual action. Yeah. And it's also, I think, one of the songs on here that is definitely a future sounding song. Mm -hmm. It very much sets the tone for what Bowie would do with The Man Who Sold the World, his next album. One of the better tracks on here, I think. And then obviously Wild Eyed Boy from Free Cloud. It's a weird, weird little song, but I like it a lot. And there's some really, really cool instrumentation work on this album, too. There's some really fey-like sounds in like Occasional Dream and the guitar riff in Janine just like, I don't know, there's something about it that I just really, really like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. You picked something and you interpreted it. There you go. Yeah. You did exactly what Bowie wanted you to do with it. Right. Yeah. And (laughs) I mean, this podcast has never been about finding the exact definition of something, but rather giving a jumping off point to exploring something in the way that you want to explore it. And so I hope that we were able to do that a little bit for you here today um and with that i think that we're going to wrap up the album kyle did you want to plug anything yeah sure so obviously audio judo you can find it at audiojudo.com got our christmas episode coming up talking about christmas songs from around the world this year we've also got our probably late december early january our albums of the year episode will be coming out if you're interested in hearing what our wrap-up for 2022 is going to sound like it'll be out soon you're on the home stretch to your 100th episode is that right yeah we're pretty close we're getting there so probably January, February, I believe. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been great. And I am really grateful that you were able to give me some more insight into David Bowie. And hopefully it'll get me and others to kind of check out more of his catalog. I've got 25 more (laughs) albums to listen to. So (laughs) (laughs) You got a little while. You got plenty of uh, headroom to grow into. Right. And with that, you can check us out on social media at AJ Throughline, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or all of that jazz post our upcoming lineups so comment on that and if you have any ideas about those upcoming albums or ideas for future albums let me know and tell me how i'm doing and how i can be better for you in the future but other than that thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Throughline with david bowie's david bowie or whatever you want to call it david bowie's second album thank you so much for listening <laughs>